Welcome to episode 276 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. DNV, the global energy expert and assurance provider headquartered in Norway, recently released its UK Energy Transition Outlook 2024. Despite massive investments in renewable energy, without swift action, the UK is currently on course to miss its 2030 climate target to lower greenhouse gas emissions 68% compared to 1990 levels, and the legally binding mid-century decarbonization target is also in jeopardy. To talk about how the UK energy transition seems to be stalling and what can be done about it, I'm joined by Frank Ketelars, Operations Manager for UK and Ireland at DNV Energy Systems. So welcome to the interview, Frank. Thank you very much. Uh, good, to, good to be here. Good to talk to people in Canada. <laughs> Well, our our audience is primarily in Canada, but we have quite a few American listeners and some in, in Europe and Asia as well. But I would venture a guess that most of them will not be familiar with energy in the UK context. And so maybe we can start off the interview with just a bit of an overview of of uh, you know how the where the UK gets its energy. Well, I mean, today, like many places, I mean, as we show in our reports, about 80% of all the primary supply actually does come from fossil fuels, of which about half of it is actually produced in the UK still, uh, from the North Sea offshore offshore fields. Half is imported. Uh, but obviously, we are actually working. So 20% of the turn, current supply is actually coming from other sources, which includes renewables, includes n- nuclear and things like that as well. But it's, it's still a very much a dominated by fossil fuels, with, of course, a very sort of, um, I would say, very uh, big endeavors to try and reduce as quickly, I think. But our, as our outlook shows, that actually will take time. So I think currently very much a fossil fuel dominated with about also in terms of how we deliver energy, about 75% delivered in terms of fossil fuels to the customer. So it's basically gas for burning our homes, petrol for, for our cars. But only and only about uh, about so twenty five percent actually comes from electricity at the moment, and that's the bit of course that we sort of are trying to green through having significant amount of renewables now on the grid here in the UK. And, and I don't know if you might say maybe a bit about because of the UK, of course, has actually been very progressive. I would say in terms of driving renewables generation through sort of good subsidies, they've actually have been able to really kickstart rollout of renewables, especially I would say offshore wind. We're, so I would say we're currently a global leader there, so things are happening. What I'm I'm curious about how the UK responded to uh, Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Now we saw in the mainland in Europe, uh, the response was basically look for other supplies of gas, uh, invest heavily in energy efficiency, and accelerate the build out of renewables. Is that the same kind of response we saw in the UK? I think I think. Partially, yes. Obviously, uh, there has been discussion then, and uh, there was quite a bit of focus suddenly again on trying to support a few more developments in the North Sea to try and actually build a bit on the, on the local security supply. But I think that has a little bit gone quiet again, I think. So in general, maybe also because we had sort of the large LNG t- terminals for importing, we had gas from Norway, we're not as reliant on the Russian gas, although, of course, we were linked to it by the gas price, which affected all of us. So, so I think I didn't... Uh, it of course had a, it changed the focus really very much back on the security of supply. I think that that is that, I would say that's correct. Yes, it seems to be that in in Europe the idea of security supply is not to get a more secure supply of fossil fuels. 
it's to generate the electricity at home with offshore wind, onshore wind, nuclear renewables, and so on. Is that fair to say about the UK? Um, yes, I, would, I mean, it partially yes, because I think in, I mean, in the short term, of course, there is, because we need so many fossil fuels, it still means we need to get them from somewhere else. So, but I think, yeah, long term, the view is if we get that many renewables, if they start dominating, it will really improve our security of supply, I would say. I think there isn't still a big discussion about whether security of supply is actually linked to oil production in the UK, with the view that a lot of the oil will be exported anyway. Gas, I think, is still a bit different, even though it's small. Uh, it is still an important part. And all gas, of course, is produced in the UK, is used in the UK and is important. But it's already a small bit. And we're already supplying a lot of the gas actually comes from Norway and, and, LNG, and LNG from other parts of the world. Now, um, heating and cooling buildings is mm -hmm. an important part of energy demand. And if, if uh, the UK is already using only uh, a little bit of gas, then how are they? And, and in particular, we know that the UK's building stock is dominated by some of these very old buildings that are hard to hard mm -hmm. to heat and cool. Uh, so how are they? How are they managing? Have they electrified those buildings already? No, I mean I, I would say the UK. It's very much. I mean, nearly most households still running on gas. I mean, gas as a result of having had very cheap gas, the UK has a bit, has really completely. I would say gasified their heatings of, of of buildings, and there is currently, I would say, a view that we're trying to change that. So there is this they're starting to think about electrifying through things like heat pumps. But to be honest, I think even with all kind of government support system, that hasn't really taken off yet. We've been, I think we've been installing about 50, 60,000 heat pumps a year. If we want to electrify, we have to get to close to a million a year. And there are, so currently is, that's one of the big discussion items. How do we decarbonize heating? Because it's such a big part of our gas demand. According to our forecast, as you will have seen, we actually still think because of this issue around cost and insulation, we think that still about 60% of all homes, even in 2050, with current prices, current costs, will actually still be burning gas in our homes. And that's will be a large part of our remaining emissions, um, uh, preventing us to get to net zero. What will happen on the heating of buildings if, uh, and I've seen some estimates that uh, China in particular will, is scaling up its manufacture of heat pumps mm -hmm. and that it will do to heat pumps what it did to uh, solar panel modules, like basically drive down costs uh, quite a bit. Uh, does that change your estimate of the role that electricity will play in decarbonizing buildings in the future? Not actually at the moment. I, I mean, I think in the end, because there's two things. I think it is understood in order to have an efficient heat pump in, in main, main, you need a certain level of insulation. And currently, that's only about 50% of the homes in the UK who have that level of insulation. You can use a heat pump, but so it's not impossible, but it'd be very expensive. And the other thing, which is very extreme, well, in, in the UK, um, the pricing of gas and electricity is quite interesting because basically electricity is four times the price of gas per kilowatt, uh, kilowatt hour, sorry. So there is a lot of, so even if you would actually replace your gas system by a heat pump that potentially could be three times as efficient, it actually would be more expensive to run it. So if forgetting about the installation cost, that's there as well. So I do believe, and it's currently, the government is thinking about how do they have a new sort of electricity gas pricing model? Because at the moment it does not incentivize electrification and, and that's an issue. 
What uh, we'll we'll get to, to some of the other sectors in just a moment, but I'm curious about the UK attitude towards electrification of the economy. I mean, this seems to be the way that yeah. most advanced economies are approaching the their climate commitments. Uh, yeah. They're going to electrify buildings. They're going to electrify transportation. Electrify industrial processes. The power sector will be shifted over to mainly renewables, but other nuclear and and biomass and other. Uh, clean sources. So uh, is that, uh, it sounds like the government understands that pretty well. Is yeah. it generally accepted publicly that there is a need to electrify the economy? I would say, yes, I think so. And I think, again, uh, our forecast shows really we're expecting as a result of electrification drive, we have about 50% of all our energy will be delivered in electricity by 2050. And we are forecasting about a two and a half times increase of, of both generation and probably also about a threefold increase of grid by 2050. And that's understood as the main way to decarbonize. So in that way, I don't think we're very different. Um, maybe the, the difference we have a little bit is that we have such a, a very sort of a gas system that's basically used across the whole country. It's, it's very much sort of part and parcel of every household nearly. So it's, it's probably more difficult to change that than other countries who maybe already have more electrified heating in some parts of Europe. I, I'm... I want to talk about the power sector for a little bit, because yeah. uh, in Canada and the United States, we have two examples that are quite a bit different. Uh, in Canada, uh, eight out of the 10 provinces have uh, government-owned crown corporation utilities, and mm -hmm. they manage the, you know, they're vertically integrated, they manage everything or most mostly everything within their, within their mm -hmm. provincial grid. And the grids are, you know, the, the, we have very low electricity costs. They're very reliable uh, and clean. 84% uh, of the electricity in Canada is is low emission because the dominance yeah. of hydro and nuclear. So, so that's great. But it's a two-edged sword because, on the other hand, we see the Americans, which had a creaky old grid, you know, full of coal, and, and now it's switching to gas. Now it's adopting renewables and batteries at a rapid pace, particularly in places like Texas and California. They're basically re-engineering their grid on the go. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's causing some problems and some growing pains, and there's been outages mm -hmm. and disasters. But this is the direction the Americans are going. Yeah. So we've got state old conservative Canada that has this pretty good grid that, mm -hmm. you know, but how do we how do we scale it up? That's that's going to be the big mm -hmm. question. Versus the Americans who are rapidly re-engineering their engineering their grid. Do any, either of those models are they applicable to the UK and its power sector? It's I mean in the UK of course it's all you have the national grid of course that actually runs the the transmission network and and those are very much the ones uh, that need to deliver this 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 step change in grid capacity I think. Uh, and then you so the, and the power generation providers they all have these targets obviously to to decarbonize um but but i mean we, we see very very much the focus on actually putting more renewables on the grid that's there i mean very much 40 i say 45 gigawatt on it today uh the, but the grid infrastructure is very much the responsibility of the, the energy of the grid operator and that is and, and to be honest i think that's still something we're working on. i think what i've heard from some of the people actually last week at our panel as well there are some very good things happening now in terms of actually planning out the grid but of course there are big the big issues about it i mean running potentially very large power power lines pylons through the countryside which people actually also won't like but will be necessary and also, especially in the bigger population centers, like old cities, like like London, Birmingham, Manchester, really to to elect to replace some of the grid. Some of it's very old as well. 
uh, needs to happen. So I think there needs to be like a step change nearly in terms of how the grid operator has to do this because they're used to running a steady state chip. Now this is going to be very different. So so I think it is very much, it will have to come from that, that grid operator and how are you going to finance that? How will we cover that in, in also in their sort of um, budgets that they will have allocated for actually building out the grid? So I think in a way, it sounds a bit more like the American system than I would say. Uh, interesting. Um, I would uh, just alert listeners to an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with uh, Gerhard Schlager, uh, who is the chief technology officer for Hitachi Energy. We talked about the changes that are going on in the American grid and, and what that means and how, if it's done right, and there's planning and there's the investment in the right places, that in fact, uh, a renewables, or let me put it this way, a grid that's geared to variable renew, uh, energy that mm -hmm. is is accom properly accommodates inverter-based resources like wind and solar can actually be very stable and reliable and, and low cost. But yeah. this is not for the faint of heart. These There really needs to be a lot of planning and engineering in here. Yeah. And, and renewables are not drop-in replacements for thermal plants. That no. that is a that is a it was a key point that came out in that in that uh, interview, and that it's a whole different animal to have this other kind of grid that we're headed towards. And it sounds like the UK is at least recognizing that and putting in place the processes to get to where it needs to go. Yeah. And of course, what was of course the big issue of variable renewables penetrating with eighty percent renewable renewables on the grid in twenty fifty. That will have a big impact so we did quite a bit of assessment as well looking at the variability of what goes through the grid and really what we're seeing it will more or less today i think it's about a plus minus 10 percent swing around the average it will be plus minus 20 percent and of course that's also on a on a larger number so we're seeing a lot more switch a lot more sort of variability so actually again we're trying to highlight the report it means an awful and a significant increase in battery storage still a need for thermal plants so we still have 20 gigawatt of thermal plants on the grid obviously they would probably be running on hydrogen or carbon capture plants and then also very much relying as well on connections to the grid with europe and the other thing which is actually becoming part of the picture is this whole idea of using access renewables for producing hydrogen as a backup source and again one of the things we recently looked at is actually we think that's a potentially a very large part of the hydrogen use in the uk if you have so many variable renewables, you will have a lot of access, which you maybe can then actually monetize as well. So that's something, but I think it's a complex picture, which will mean a very different grid to operate, I would agree. And yeah, I, I'm interested in the the role of hydrogen as uh, long-term storage, as uh, you know, uh, gas plants that have dual fuel uh, yeah. turbines now, we're seeing those come in. And it seems to me that, I mean, I've had a, a number of economists argue in, in interviews that uh, as the the cost per watt of solar panels drops, eventually we're going to get to a marginal cost of almost zero mm -hmm. for, for mm -hmm. solar power. And, and that makes the production of hydrogen relatively cheap. And if you're doing it on site and then mm -hmm. you can store it, then you can use it in these thermal converted thermal plants. And that becomes a real a key uh, source of firm dispatchable power uh, in this new grid. Is that kind of what you had in mind? That, that's what we're thinking about. Obviously, you need a very different economic model than commercial model for those power plants because they barely would be running. I mean, they might be running only a couple of weeks a year. So then this investment of having a plant there, also the hydrogen storage, of course, is a big deal. You have to make sure, of course, you have the right storage available. And also, and that's something where we actually discussed with people at like the National Gas here who are sort of the, 
the, the currently sort of the, the transmission provider, you need a system actually in place, like a hydrogen backbone type system in place to be able to move the hydrogen around when you need it. So, so hydrogen in that space, yes, that would be, in our view, there is a role for it. And, and especially the more variable renewables you got, you will have periods when you have a lot of excess. And if you then have your, as I say, very cheap, potentially very cheap hydrogen, then um, as long as you have all the facilities, of course, there's no use having all this hydrogen if you don't have 20, 30 gigawatt of actual um, power plants to actually run it. Otherwise, it just uh, won't help you. So it's, it's, but so I think we just need to look still what a system looks like and to really understand the variability and sort of how to get it resilient is, is still a big question. I think it can be done and everyone keeps telling me this is not impossible, but it's a very different system what we have today. I would agree. Um, let's talk about the electrification of transportation and yeah. much has been made of Norway's rapid switch to electric vehicles, uh, thanks in part to uh, very uh, generous uh, subsidies from the Norwegian mm -hmm. government. And lately, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, impact of Chinese uh, electric vehicles in uh, in uh, in Europe. And mm -hmm. I read an interview, I keep coming back to this, but it, it Carlos Tavares, the head of Stellantis, said it so clearly. He said, if you're an OEM, like a legacy auto manufacturer, and you are not ready for the onslaught of Chinese EV competition, you're dead in the water. Like yeah. he was, he didn't mince words. And yeah. I've run that quote past a, a number of experts in the field and they go, he's absolutely right. So the China, uh, sorry, Europe seems to be the big export market. The first really big one that the Chinese auto, uh, EV makers are targeting. That of course has now got some response from European governments who aren't happy about, about that uh, happening. So there's some negotiations going on. What, how is the UK responding to this? Are we seeing a lot of Chinese uh, EVs and what do people think about it? I must add, this is probably not an area I know that much about, actually. I mean, I'm aware, I'm aware of the overall electrification and what was happening on the EV side and the uptake there, but I must have, but don't have a real so deep insight in terms of how we are so dealing with the Chinese influx there, I think. I do, so maybe, maybe not I'm the right person to comment on that. Okay, fair enough. Um, is it fair to ask you then about the role that electric vehicles might play uh, in an electrifying economy and the power grid? I mean, there's talk about, you know, vehicle to grid uh, integration has been yeah. around for, for, for years, but now seems to be moving into the pilot stage and doesn't, and seems to be only maybe a year or two away from, from fairly large scale uh, adoption. Is, is that something that the UK is considering? We, I mean, we are looking at it. I mean, as, as DMV, actually, we actually think that this is quite a significant part of the potential overall storage, battery storage that will be available. Obviously, a lot of things still have to happen, but I think it's definitely part of the solution. So when we look at our forecast, we see actually vehicle to grid as a very large part of the storage, not specifically just for the UK, but in general as, as, a, as a very big part of the storage story. Um, so, yes, I see that happening. Um, I think also, uh, as I say, in the UK, even though there's been some talk about delaying the ban of internal combustion engines phase out, the view is still that with the existing uh, directors for the manufacturers, we still think that post 2035, very few um, uh, combustion engines will still be sold. And really, our view is still that by 2050, most of the UK will be using EVs uh, going forward. So it's very much still in line with, 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 with many others, I think. So, and obviously that means we are very much a big part of the electrification or the increase in electricity demand is linked around the whole use of uh, electricity for transportation. Now, your report argues that the UK is in danger of not meeting its targets, the slowing yeah. of the energy yeah. transition, 
And you also argue that the the response, the proper, the, the best response to that is for uh, better government policy, uh, more clear government policy to address some of these bottlenecks and and places where investment is required. Maybe could you elaborate on that, please? Well, the main thing, I mean, we're trying to get across a bit. I, th I think at the moment, still in the UK, there's a lot of different options on the table. Like when you look at the Committee of Climate Change, they have their main scenarios to balance net zero pathway. is very much assuming that all these things will still develop over some time. I, I think the reason I think why things are not moving fast in some areas, for example, heating for homes, is because there's such there's no clear guidance yet of where people go. I think EVs is quite clear. In the end, yes, they're still expensive, but it's quite clear. There's one solution and we'll go there. Heating for homes is more complicated. Hydrogen is a bit more complicated. So for the areas where it's not so clear, I think I see a little bit of, because there's no clear path yet, it's actually harder to see it moving forward. So one thing we argue for, and I think in some ways you see it in the UK now, they have they appointed the new energy system operator as of this summer to really take this whole system view that you really have to look across all the energy vectors. And, and I was still thinking, yeah, you have to look as a UK, what's the most economic, the most um, efficient energies you could have at 2050, how do you get there? And I think uh, just only relying on market forces, market competition and consumer choice, I think that won't get you there. So I think that's maybe the key point we're trying to make is that really you need a bit more you know, direction and maybe also a bit, a bit more government sort of pushing things in certain directions. And otherwise, I think you will basically be sort of sticking where you are. For example, home for heating. I think without any major changes, people will still be buying boilers for the next five, 10 years. And they every time you buy a new boiler, it's another 15 years, of course. So, so, so and I see it's easy to stick with gas. But probably, of course, that means you will have emissions. Right. Um, every time that uh, heat pumps come up, I always chime in with the success story that, you know, is our family. Uh, we adopted a heat pump uh, two years ago. Uh, but our house is quite well insulated. It was built in the 90s, and it's got at least our 17, maybe our 20 uh, insulation in it. It's very, very airtight. And the heat pump is is a revelation. I mean, it is an amazing yeah. technology. Uh, and yeah, I, I only, I am only sorry that we didn't get one uh, a lot sooner. But we're very happy with it, and our our uh, our heating and cooling bills are very low, uh, shockingly low. Were you gas before? Were you gas before, or what were yes, you before? We were gas before. I, I, every house I've ever owned uh, has mm -hmm. been has been a gas furnace, and we've not had air conditioning before. So the you can imagine the the change in comfort level, costs, uh, and so on. And so, uh, but we've talked about uh, electrification of, of buildings enough. I want to get back to the idea of what needs to be done. And one of your recommendations is clear incentives to crowd in private capital for the build out of clean energy generation. I hear that a lot, crowd in private capital. What did you have in mind? Oh, um, I mean, I, I want to be careful here. Because I'm, again, I'm not myself a finance person. Some of our people in, in, in the group have, in, who've been working on this have been more looking at the finance side of things. So it would be hard to maybe be very specific here, I think. Um, so maybe I... Maybe better something to sell to discuss, I think, actually. Um, not really my area of expertise. I'm more coming from the technology side, I would say. Fair enough. Um, well, let's talk about the energy infrastructure capex because you yeah. uh, 26 billion uh, British pounds uh, currently uh, rises over 30 years to 38 billion pounds. And one of the things that's come up in, in Alberta uh, over this debate around renewables 
is you know the government which is has just slagged renewables wind and solar publicly uh with all sorts of misinformation it's very not very often that you see a provincial government taking this approach uh towards a you know investment basically and but i think the the, the system operator in alberta issued a report and i interviewed one of the vps about it and she said 90 percent of the cost for increasing generation electric electoral electrical general electricity generation will be borne by the private sector mm-hmm. not the public sector the private sector and is this something that that uh, also applies to the uk i mean it will be it will be a mix i think and i guess in terms of how we build it so far through government subsidies it has been sort of happening in that way i guess i mean i i it has. I mean, if you, if you, the overall investment, well, let's not forget the, the the number we're mentioning there is a mix of many, many different things. I mean, it includes, for example, costs or retrofitting homes, which will be, in a way, probably more carried by by individuals. I guess there's there's a lot around the actual infrastructure onshore, around both the pipelines, the uh, sorry, the pipelines, but also the grid infrastructure. So I think a lot. Then it's sort of you get sort of into utility sector. I guess in the past, as well, of course, the whole. A lot of the investment, 50% of the investment was was offshore oil and gas, so very much the private sector. So, so it's a real mix. Um, in the future, where is it going to go? I think in the end, it, um, again, I'm maybe not best place to to really give a, uh, an exact view on this. Uh, it's not really, I mean, as I say, our fo- report is more focusing on sort of technology and sort of the overall, more, the absolute capex to try to see what it actually would mean in terms of investment for the country. So maybe... Maybe keep it a bit vague, that I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, on the demand side, uh, yeah. your report uh, recommends extensive engagement with society to embed yeah. low carbon solutions. And this is, speaks to my heart as a journalist, because I've been arguing probably for four or five years now that Canada needs a national energy strategy and we need to have a we need to expand our energy conversation. We're not even talking about the energy transition really. Everything gets viewed through the climate lens and and then that goes in places that, you know, are just are, are silly sometimes. And so I was intrigued by this recommendation. Uh maybe you could expand on that a bit. Wait. I think one thing I feel very strongly about, I think I think we don't actually engage enough with society at large about this whole issue, because I do think it's such a complex, it's such a complex question. And it's, so, and it's such a huge transition. And I think we don't talk enough about it. We basically, it is there in terms of people, yeah, this whole thing about heat pumps or not, uh, hydrogen or not, but people forget that, that we actually, we have to make these changes, but it will, and, and because of this change, it actually means people have to, not everything's going to be easy. There's, there's going to be a cost associated with it, so we have to decide how you're going to pay for this. Is it going to, is it going to be taxation? Is it going to be people themselves having to pay for it? So it's, so I do really think, when I, in general, present these, I'm, I'm amazed how little actually awareness there still is about what's actually required. The average person, even the average person, I was talking to someone yesterday, they don't even even know what a heat pump really means in terms of in terms of efficiency improvement. So we don't actually explain to people what is there. And also, for example, explain to people, we need to electrify, for example, which means we need renewable wind farms, maybe in the UK, on land. We also need a lot of additional pylons. So people have to accept that if you want to make this work, we will need change. So, and I think we... We don't. I think we don't dare to say it quite often because I think it is forgotten. These are these are difficult subjects, difficult decisions to take, and uh, and I, I I think it would be. And we discussed at our launch last week. We had a panel there as well. This whole discussion on 
awareness is important in making people aware of it so they actually understand as well where we're coming from rather than just telling them oh we're going to change this furnace to a an arc furnace so you're going to lose your job next week which which happened here in the uk so i think this engagement for understanding what it means for people the reskilling and also the other thing i think is it's an amazing opportunity for all for all these countries because there's so much opportunity for actually a actually um, work for jobs because it will be such a big infrastructure project i mean it's the biggest infrastructure project i think the uk will have, have delivered for a long long time so so i think you could you can focus on the positive but also maybe just awareness of the step change that's required and i feel quite yeah passionate about it and i think even even at schools at universities people need to know about this and so yeah that's i think where we're coming from a little bit and obviously that means then you get more you get buy-in and you can also get um and also maybe acceptance that change needs to happen um, and it's not there's, there's going to be change to our society around this whole topic i think on that note uh that actually is a, a keen interest of mine um starting 40 years ago when i was doing my graduate work uh, around the mechanization of, of farming in in mm -hmm. canada because you didn't you don't just mechanize agriculture you literally change the rural society yeah, you know, yeah. they, we had 80% of people that used to work on farms. Now it's like 1% and the rural areas have just emptied out. And yeah. so there's, it, it would be reasonable to assume that given the change, uh, the magnitude of change that's coming with this energy transition, that we will also see changes in the way we organize society. Yeah. Maybe we, maybe we organize our, uh, our cities better mm, you know, yeah. for, for better mobility. That would be one thing that we could do. And so I'm, I'm very interested in, in this and also the idea that we need to talk about it because mm. I remember in, in my graduate work, I, I read old farm newspapers from the 1920s and farmers were having this very vigorous, well-informed debate about what tractors meant for the future mm. of their society. I don't see the equivalent of that, that debate ha happening in Canada and to some extent, I guess, in the U.S., it's all, you know, it, it happens at this rarefied level that the average person just doesn't engage with and, and frankly, just is, is, uh, is mostly uninformed, as you say. So uh, we'll be watching that with, uh, with some, yeah. some interest. Um, uh, let's end the, the conversation this way, Frank. Um, I am of the opinion I think the evidence supports this, that we're now into an energy transition that is driven by technology and economics. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just better technology at a lower cost and, and it's, it's adoption is inevitable. The only issue is pace. How yeah, fast yeah, actually, will it go? I, I, would, I, would you agree with that based on your understanding of the UK? Yes, I mean, I mean, I always keep saying, yeah, the, the challenge is actually, it's the timing, it's the time scale long term of course the costs are coming and long term we will have an excess of renewables we will have an excess of renewables at a certain time but not yet and i think that's i mean including things like for example we're talking about green hydrogen as being part of decarbonizing certain parts of the industry at the moment i think there's still an issue about where is it all going to come from because any electricity you currently generate is needed to electrify your country or electrify your industry so so i think it's all of yeah but long term, it does. Yeah, it's, it's a no brainer. This will work and it will be in the end, a cheaper system, a more efficient system. But to get there by 2050 and time within all the various carbon budgets that the world has, it, that's the that's the big challenge. And, uh, and I think that's people need to work very hard to get there. 
it's a very energy transitions are a very messy process. They are not neat and ordered, unfortunately, <laughs> as much as we would like them to be. Well, Frank, this has been fascinating. Uh, I know a lot more about the UK uh, energy situation than I did before. I hope that's true for our listeners as well. So thank you very much for this. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to, to be there. Thank you very much. Thank you.